Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your listening and sharing with our investigations into all things strange and wonderful. Uh, we really do want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing introduction. Uh, you can find him and his lovely wife, Deb, if you, if you Google uh, Ken Quiethawk or Native American Storytellers. They're uh, out there on the Internet, and they are preservers of an amazing ancient tradition that has brought wisdom and insight to many who haven't had the options to read textbooks that were written by people who are so far in the past that they have become ancient before their time. But that's another show. Nearly every ancient culture has legends of ancient visitors who came from the stars these visitors brought knowledge, advances in technology, and sometimes chaos to the primitive inhabitants of Earth. The best preserved of these legends are embedded in South American lore and in sacred wisdom, passed from generation to generation in Native American traditions. The Hopi tribe, for example, has a detailed and complex mythology involving what appear to be aliens. The Hopi also have specific prophecies involving a return of these visitors. Visitors from the Hidden Realms, the book we're going to talk about initially tonight, details many of these ancient South American and Native American legends and compares them to the modern reports of UFO sightings, strange appearances of unusual people bearing important messages, and alien abductions. Brent Rains, who has investigated UFO reports since 1967, presents a multitude of previously unpublished UFO cases and abductions and shows how these seem to be directly related to the visitations reported by modern shamans. He also presents the thoughts of some of the most important thinkers in the field of ufology and reaches remarkable and surprising conclusions about the visitors. He's met and or interviewed most of the major figures in American ufology, including numerous abductees and key re researchers, including Betty Hill, John Keel, Brad Steiger, 
Yuri Geller, and many others. Since his earliest involvement in the field, he has edited and published Alternative Perceptions, a magazine producing over 70 issues, which is now online, so check that one out. He's also written chapters and sections in several books on UFOs and Native American lore. Those of you who know me know that this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. So I welcome Brent to the show. Welcome, welcome Brent. I'm glad you're here. Well, thank you, uh, Barbara, for that great introduction. And, and uh, when that was originally written, I might add that we're now uh, over 250 uh, <laughs> Uh, issues of alternate <laughs> perceptions. <laughs> oh, oh, I have a really was, old bio. Was a <laughs> but that's okay. I'll, I can bring it up to date. And of course, the, the alternate perceptions is now at apmagazine.info. If anybody uh-huh. wants to check that out later. But uh, thank you very much for having me on again. Um, it's always great to talk with you. And we just had a conversation a few days ago. We we talked for a good hour. We could have made a show out of that, I think. Uh, but uh, anyway, <laughs> we just laid yes, the groundwork, yes, we, I think, actually. We, we could have, <laughs> in sh- for sure. Um, so everybody has their own pr- – and, and as we said just earlier that, you know, UFOs have been around. There's really not a question as to whether there are UFOs. They are unidentified flying objects. So UFOs, in, in you know, with that – definition have been around forever and they're not anything to be frightened of or scared of or anything like that but but when did everybody has their own story about how they became involved how they became intrigued by them so how did you become obsessed with them yeah and i did become obsessed initially i i wasn't intending to become obsessed i was you know quite young and as a young man, uh, my interest generally skipped around a lot. I mean, at one time I was into dinosaurs after my parents took me as a young boy uh, at the Smithsonian Institute, and I saw these big, giant uh, fossil remnants of, of the, you know, uh, I remember the triceratops and the giant pterodactyls and all this there up on the wall, and and uh, trying to imagine how they must have looked. And uh, I even remember wandering off into a section where they had all these drawers. You could pull out the drawers, and there were all these artifacts. I don't think I was supposed to be in that room, but anyway, it was it <laughs> was quite, it was quite yeah, yeah probably not. It was quite fascinating though, and uh, and um, but you know then I I had uh, a little playhouse you know as a kid, and then my dad built, and uh, I used it for an observatory. I called it the Earth Station, and. And I uh, had a little hole cut out, a little telescope, and I would, uh, you know, see Venus on the horizon and study it and the moon and stuff. And um, so anyway, after the March 1966 wave that, that hit the country, and of course, Michigan was the main area where it uh, concentrated. Uh, that's when, uh-huh. in fact, uh, Dr. Heineck, there was a press conference, and he speculated about swamp gas, and immediately all these uh, journalists ran for the phones and called their editors. Uh, today, of course, they would get on their cell phones and contact them. But anyway, um, yeah. Michigan Michigan wasn't the only place. We had sightings up in Maine, where I'm originally from, and my dad and I would, you know, sometimes kind of sky watch a little and uh, see if we could uh, see anything strange. There was a sighting that month up in Bangor, Maine, and 
it was a, a gentleman by the name of John King. He said that he had seen a disc-shaped, metallic-looking domed craft, a classic flying saucer, just maybe a foot over the ground. He fired at it with a pistol, and he fired about uh, about uh, four shots at it, and at least two of them he heard a ping, ping sound. And uh, he was convinced that it was probably an alien spaceship. He contacted the police about the report. And... Uh, so we had some some pretty good activity in in our own state of Maine back at that time. Of course, I live in Tennessee now. Um, uh-huh. Been here since '77, uh, and uh, but I've you know what started out in probably around January 1967 when I remember clipping out of something out of the newspaper. I started collecting the information, and, and what had happened was is I read Flying Saucer's Serious Business by a Frank Edwards, which was a really a big bestseller at that time. And, uh, you know, I I just thought that uh, this is real interesting. I want to look into it, collect all the clippings and magazine articles, books I could, and there just ended up being no, no end to it. After, I guess, a couple of years, I started mimeographing a little newsletter I called Sauceritis, and then I wanted people to know that I took it serious, so I call it the Scientific Sauceritis Review, and I had uh, quite a few readers across the country uh, for a couple, three years. Uh, I even had consultants. My ABSM consultant was Lauren Coleman, who uh, used to live in Illinois, and now he's in Maine himself, Portland, Maine, where he has a museum, Cryptozoology Museum, and uh, I... uh, Tom Adams, uh, he became quite popular in the field involved with the cattle mutilation phenomena. had a magazine called Stigmata. He passed away, I think, uh, about three years ago. I used to correspond with him. Lucius Farish, who started the Eureka Springs uh, Conference, um, tried to get John Keel. I started corresponding with him back in October 69, and we exchanged some pretty good letters, and we swapped newsletters. Mine for his Anomaly magazine, which was pretty interesting. But uh, he, he turned me down on being a consultant. He said he, he more or less said he was more uh, private and he didn't want to uh, be a member of any organization out there. He kind of kept to himself. So anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that's how I got started. And eventually I was, you know, I really was impressed with John Keel because of the fact that he would, he had gone out into the field, uh, traveled through about 20 states, and uh, I thought that sounded like a real adventure. So I later on, I traveled through, you know, a lot of states myself. Uh, over the years, it's been over 20. Uh, but I traveled from Maine to Florida about the entire uh, summer of 1975. And and uh, there was a young lady I met down here in Tennessee, and uh that's how I ended up here in 1977. We got married, and I, I now call this home. <laughs> so to make a long story short. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, how, I think it's it's fascinating how people are affected by flying saucers. Um, some some absolutely deny they exist. Others are terrified by them. Others, you know. I, as I was, I told you once that um, when it, when one landed on my campus, I was in a group of girls because, of course, we were all hanging out the window, staring at what was going on. Um, that there were there were people who stood right next to me that that panicked, and a couple of people fainted, and and then later said they didn't know what 
what they saw. They didn't see anything. They just fainted. And then others who were hysterical hiding in closets and others who stood right next to me and saw nothing, and I saw this huge object blank out the sky. And I've I've often been very um, fascinated by how their presence or their existence affects people differently. And um, I, I I have, and it's my opinion only. So I have to I have to I have to preface everything I say with this is my opinion. It's not carved in stone any place, and I can possibly change it tomorrow given half a chance. But I have experienced that those people who are drawn to them, who are intrigued by them, who are um, touched by them. Um, there, there is a shift in their consciousness that is really quite profound. And it has nothing to do with level of intelligence. It has to do with conscious awareness. And I found that, that it opened up uh, a, a tremendous um, platform of, of extrasensory type stuff that, that you know, becoming um, more intuitive, becoming more insightful, becoming, I mean, Nothing that I could, you know, pin a pin a label on or make a living at, but but it did change the way that it changed my life profoundly. And I mean, I I, I lived for decades with people saying, "Oh yeah, you're the one that saw the flying saucer. How much did you have to drink that night?" And it was it was really, you know, usually when you get abuse like that, you 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 keep quiet and you don't talk about it, but. When it comes to this kind of experience, knowing you're going to be ridiculed, you still go ahead and talk about it, which to me is stupid, but I did it anyhow. And, and you know, then probably 20 years ago, somebody published a book called um, In Focus, and, and it was about photographs of UFOs, and, and the one site, and he it was a report on authenticated UFO sightings, and the one at my college was one of them, and it was like, you know, after all these years, I've been vindicated, and now I can't find any of those people that ridiculed them to go, told you so. So, um, <laughs> but but it was a great experience for me. It was very exciting. It was it was not, I wasn't scared at all. And you know, you show me a skunk walking towards me, and you, I will show you fear. But this disc flying over my head didn't scare me at all. So probably mm, yeah. maybe because it was maybe because it was leaving, you know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so so I'm I'm often fascinated by what is it in in the people that are fascinated by it, whether or not they see one or not. Um, Patrick Cook w- was my husband, and he had a huge website on on the Bible UFO connections. He had never seen a UFO, and yet he studied them. In depth, I mean, he was crazy into them, but he had never seen one. So that, so that just the mere existence of them shifted his consciousness somehow. So, um, I don't know even if that was the intention of whoever originated them, but it seems to have been a light switch that that is turned on in many people's consciousness about the possibility of there being 
not just this world, but a cosmic community out there someplace. It, yeah, it, it's I remember reading. I remember reading years ago um, the well-known in the field uh, psychologist, Wyoming psychologist, Dr. Arleo Sprinkle, who's had a couple of UFO sightings himself early on, uh, I think back in the late uh, 40s and then 1956, I believe, out in Wyoming. And that those two sightings kind <clears> of, <throat> you know, although he wasn't really into UFOs, and, and, a, and a big believer in the beginning, <clears throat> those experiences kind of warmed him up to it. And then he later joined APRO as a consultant, and he uh, became uh, someone who had conferences, hypnotized uh, experiences, did regression hypnosis. And uh, he came kind of come up with the idea that uh, we, a lot of the people are evolving from like planetary citizens to cosmic citizens. They, they begin to... Uh, change in their their focus about things and uh it 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 affects them where you know uh, instead of just being a kind of a evolving like the mainstream has been for years a kind of a nuts and bolts et things uh they uh get more into uh more level more advanced levels of metaphysics consciousness awareness at different levels um the paranormal, uh, certain psychic things. Sometimes they develop psychic abilities. Uh, they have suddenly uh, precognitions, uh, psychokinesis, or you know, even uh, poltergeist manifestations may erupt after a sighting uh, again and again in many, many different stories that we hear. And sometimes they have, um, you know, experiences with uh, spirits, ghosts, or whatever. And and it seems to be involved with. Um, a heightened psychic awareness, and they also develop interest in um, different religions and, and uh, have questions about things that they never questioned before. And uh, although they may have been had some psychic ability in the beginning, a lot of times maybe after the a UFO encounter, it seems to develop even to a greater extent. And uh, I think that the way ufology is evolving, we're getting more more awareness about uh, the importance of of consciousness and physics um, in this field, and uh, it needs and it uh, like you said, it's very hard to pin down so many different aspects to it all, um, and it's it's a it's welcome to you know it's a welcome thing to have people from different disciplines try to you know look at it and see what kind of thoughts evolve for them. Um, and, you know, because we have all these different elements that we really haven't looked at real closely uh, in in the past as much as we should, there has been, you know, Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonier in 1969, which was quite a, a landmark pioneering work of its own where he looked at stories of of fairies and notice the comparisons of people seeing fairies and gnomes and leprechauns to little people, you know, the native Americans too. And, and, uh, and John Keel's work, operation Trojan horse and strange creatures from time and space. And in 1970, you know, about half a century ago now. And, uh, and yet we are, you know, we're uh, more and more people are still, you know, starting to look at these, at these elements still and, and noticing, um, 
how this thing is far more complex and perplexing than just, uh, you know, ET coming down and uh, collecting rock samples and uh, poking us with pins and needles. Although, although, I mean, you know, I can't say that's not going on too, but I think that the idea that there is something that's here and been here for a long time. And, you know, like we were discussing in a little private conversation we had a few days ago, um, you know, if it was something that was a threat, an eminent a threat, you know, like calling the military, we gotta, we gotta, gotta do something about this. You know, I know that some people are, you know, we've had discussion about uh, uh, the gentleman from the Pentagon and, and the Nimitz and, and recent uh, military sightings and and how some people are in the military are kind of worried about uh, someone coming in, you know, maybe ETs and and uh, we have to protect ourselves. Well, we're I think we're way past that, um, and uh, you know, uh, but we, you know, everybody has to approach it from whatever their area of specialization is. We need to have people come together, and uh, you know, feel free to agree to disagree. The important thing is that we have dialogue going on, and we all look at it, and everybody's perspective may bring to bear. Um, some insight, some understanding that uh, someone else from another background might overlook. And and we've got to have this multidisciplinary approach. We've got to have the parapsychologists and the cryptozoologists who are willing to dialogue with the the UFO researchers. And and, and a lot of times it's, you know, like people don't want to do that. They don't want to cross over into that other field. You know, this is my field. This is my area of specialization. Yours has nothing to do with it. I mean, imagine how many years that that has gone on that, Someone's investigating a UFO case, and the witness says, oh, I saw Bigfoot uh, shortly afterwards. <laughs> well, huh? that's not my field. You know, you go to a Bigfoot guy and talk to him <laughs> about that, you know. <laughs> so well, anyway. it, it, is, it, it is interesting, though, because I, I think that we are coming closer and closer to sort of sharing and blending modalities than, than in the past. Um, you know when you when you're getting into UFOs and then triggering um, psychic or intuitive um, abilities, and then then you have to do the step over into are we alone? Is there reincarnation? And then you, then you hit past lives and reincarnation. And and there are there are scientists out there today that have written books on um, uh on near death experiences about. You know, there's there's one doctor whose name I can't remember who was clinically dead, and he came back and you know he said, well, I I my brain may have been dead, I may have flatlined, but my consciousness was was someplace else, and um, there is someplace else to go. So, you know, it's 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 exciting to think that you know these people are. You know where once they would hit, they would have hidden in the closet and said, "Uh-uh, not me. I'm not going out there." Now they, now they're coming out and they're saying, "You know, well, let's consider this. Let's look at this. Let's try to explain this." And um, I think your your book, to get back to your book, um, is is fascinating in that you really do go into a lot of the the early reports and a lot of and you've you've linked them to. Um, to shamans and to some of the some of the histo- uh, the, the ancient fables that that are that, that 
ring true in that they are explaining things that are happening today and and that they happened hundreds, sometimes thousands of years ago. So that it's it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I know you 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 worked just uh, you worked mostly for a while with the South American shamans, and then you've worked with Native American shamans. So. Um, what did you find with them? I mean, their belief is is profound as to where these people well, from the in, stars came from. Yeah, back in back in uh, 1975, I uh, I was visiting a uh, a lady out in near Akron, Ohio, a uh, little town there, uh, Cuyahoga Falls, and. Um, she was an experiencer from going back to the 1950s. She was also pot Iroquois Indian, and she was very interested in in uh, in uh, the shamanic uh, elements, the Native American, as well as many other areas. She had a meditation group that would meet uh, periodically at her home. She had sky watches, so I would I would go uh, a number of times uh, on weekends to her home because I knew there was going to be all these interesting people to talk with, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. there was a wooded area behind the house and they'd have a bonfire and people would be gathered around. And uh, so I'd uh, shuffle around with my little reel to reel tape recorder and, you know, record some conversation with people. And, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, she had some, uh, some really cool stories and uh, introduced me to some interesting experiences. And one was, uh, she told me about over in Pennsylvania, there was a, uh, a Native American medicine man uh, who was a Quanahawk uh, Indian. And so I went over to interview him in 76 and 77. We talked on the phone. We had some correspondence. Um, The second time I went over there, uh, Joan, now my wife, uh, she went with me and we, uh, we both went in and talked with him and, and, uh, he was telling us about uh, the legendary beings in, in uh, his belief system was the Yudushqua, um, Y-U-H-D-U-S-H and the G-W-A. And he said, you've got to say it with guttural. He says, Yudushqua. <laughs> and he says, they were the protectors of our people. And uh, he was... Uh, telling me how they made prayer mounds when he was uh, like four years old. They, you know, his uh, elders taught him how to build his first prayer mound. And he was telling me about some of his early psychic spiritual experiences. And, uh, and his wife had an envelope that she drew uh, this craft that they called a fire canoe that landed behind their home a few years earlier. And how these beings, these tall beings, the Adusqua, came out of it and entered the house. They had to, you know, lean forward in order to avoid hitting their head on the uh, the top of the door frame. Um, and I just found it quite quite fascinating. And, and uh, he said that they were E.T. but spirit too. And, and later on that made me think of like the Hopi Indians and their Kachina with Ka being respect and China being spirit. And uh, they also... A lot of the elders of the Hopi believe that uh, uh, their spirit, their when they be evolved to Kachinahood, they they live in different worlds. This is the fourth world. 
they believe they came from the Pleiades. Um, and what's remarkable is um, there's a book by a Frank Waters, uh, um, the book of the Hopi, it's called. And in that book, it's not a New Age metaphysical book. It's it's about the the Hopi and their traditions and their beliefs. But in it, there's some really remarkable things. Um, the author compares like the Tibetan and Hindus of the of the uh, the East and their belief in these energy centers called the chakras. Well, the Hopis okay. also had a belief in the same energy centers. They didn't call them chakras. They had other names. But there was the solar plexus, the heart, the throat, the forehead, and the crown of the head. And what's interesting is both of them believe that the crown of the head is where consciousness entered the body at birth and exited at death. And uh, all over the world you have beliefs, you know, uh, shamanic uh, groups of people that would use quartz crystals to, you know, to uh, look into people's bodies to do healings and such. And among uh-huh. the Hopi, the medicine men would use these small quartz crystals to look at these five energy centers and to see how the person was, was doing. And uh, they also, you know, with the seven stars of the Pleiades, they, they felt there were seven universes. It was a road of life. Uh, Earth is the fourth world that they live in. There's three more to go, and then there's two more dimensions beyond mortal man's reach, is what the book said. So I just found that all wow. quite <laughs> quite intriguing, you know. And, of course, it wasn't it was back around 1970 that there was a man by the name of Paul Solomon, and, of course, this is in my book, too, who was a contact experiencer, and he went among different uh, Indian reservations, and he would, like, uh, claim he was in contact with these beings, and he would call them down. And uh, one of the places he visited was uh, the Hopi Indians in Arizona, and there were a number of people who, uh, including newspaper people, who had uh, interviewed him and been out and seen some curious, unusual lights appear in the sky when when this uh, Paul Solomon was supposed to be in mental contact with him. Uh And uh, so, um, and I remember there was one story of a Hopi around this time who said he had seen a craft and it, uh, the outer shell turned invisible and he could see in the craft as it flew over him and he could see this... uh, uh, human-looking being with long blonde hair at the controls flying over. And so, you know, the Hopi is really um, uh, really kind of a, a stellar religion. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of things that are very uh, – I know I was talking to a, um, a Native American who uh, was Apache. He was an artist, and he – for a while, he lived in our area. He passed away about two years ago, but we got to talk with him quite a bit. And uh, he was telling about some of the experiences he had. And he said, you know, he said just about all these things that would happen to me that were odd, like seeing a spaceship, um, I was on Hopi land, you know. And he says, those uh, those Hopi brothers, they're really into the, the space people. 
but uh, well, yeah, you know, I think there wasn't the judgment that um, went on back then that that did take place in the fifties and the sixties, and yeah, I'm finding that. In the in the well, you have the Battle of Los Angeles that was well documented with with UFOs that the army shot at and the the stuff bounced off them and um, stuff like that. And that was in the 40s, I think. Yeah, that was the 40s. And then you have um, mm-hmm. the Phoenix Lights, which again was another of your major sightings that thousands and thousands of people saw. And then. Then it went crazy, and then everybody and their grandmother was seeing them. There were so many of them. It was kind of hard to tell. And then you had um, in in New York, uh, in, in, in the Hudson River area, uh, there was an amazing um, rash of them for a while. And now you don't see yes. them so much. So, well, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's, um, well, you know, they, the, the uh, yeah, it's, it doesn't reach the papers like it used to where, you know, that was where we detected a lot of our flaps. Uh, right now, just a few days ago, um, I talked with, uh, did an interview with, uh, along with uh, a couple of my co-hosts, a gentleman down in San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, Jorge, uh, Martin Mirandi, and since uh, around January 7th, they had a 6.4 earthquake uh, off the coast, uh, the eastern, southeastern, I think, coast of Puerto Rico, and it's in an area, the epicenter, where they had previously had a lot of reports among uh, fishermen and military and, and police of these offshore sightings of craft going in and out of the water, and there was a a long time belief there about uh, underwater alien base in that area. And ever since that's happened, and apparently this is still an ongoing situation, there have been numerous sightings of uh, craft, some of them quite large, uh, cigar-shaped, metallic-looking craft, no no wings, no windows, just solid metallic-looking on the outside, cruising through the skies. Uh, and of course the spheres and and discs and even uh, some triangular shaped craft and mm-hmm. um, and uh, what was what's interesting is they've had reports of like these uh, gray beings uh, with the you know I think these have been about five feet tall and they've got the big black eyes pretty yeah. typical of what you know has been reported here except instead of grabbing anybody and taking them or having a contact, uh, people just see them around their houses, uh, on their balconies. And when they approach them, uh, the, the being seem curious about them, but if the person tries to approach the being, they run off. And, uh, this has been going on since, uh, this earthquake. Now he said that about, uh, two days prior, there was a, uh, a woman who was a nurse who said that she'd heard something outside. Uh, many times people have been alerted by their dogs. And uh, she went to look out a, a window and saw these two beings. And they, with her, they communicated in the head and said, 
mentally that uh, that something was going to happen and that uh, they should, you know, have food and resources on hand, uh, but uh, everything was going to apparently be all right. <laughs> and then this earthquake hit, and some of them, uh, Jorge said, were kind of worried that uh, there might be uh, further earthquake activity or something. You know, they, they're, they're just wondering why these beings are, you know, kind of, appearing the ships and the beings and if uh you know they're preparing for something else to happen what's what's going on but they're apparently not that afraid of 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 the activity it's just concerned about will there be another earthquake uh is there is this you know kind of a warning type thing or or whatever (laughs) and you described how well, I'm glad you're you're bringing this up because you know so many people have heard stories about you know communion. For one thing, that book was was frightening to um, uh, Whitney, and it just I never got a feeling of fear from any of it, and I, I'm wondering if the way you react has something to do with your consciousness and um, let me really go out on the limb here and your experience with other dimensions and, you know, interdimensional stuff and other worlds and other universes because lots of times things that we see are kind of like a, fla- a, a fold in time where, where we are seeing something that happened either in another time frame or in another timeline that has just kind of overlaid ours for for a while. I mean, the the way we explain what we see, it, it, it's like you know you explain from your own frame of reference. And these days, our frame of reference is so much vaster than than it was forty, fifty, sixty years ago, or more. Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> you know it's it's. Um, it is something to to try to ponder and, and figure out what what goes on. I mean, some people's experiences are very negative. Some people's are, are extremely positive. Um, you know, you have the abductee, you have the contactee. Some people start out being very frightened by the experience and feel that they're an abductee, and then later on, you know, someone who's been abused, and then later on they begin to start to feel a positive side to it and they become a contactee and and then some will say well that's kind of like the, the Stockholm syndrome you know they've uh, they've been abused and they're just identifying with you know <laughs> their abusers uh, mm-hmm. but it seems like there's um, in all categories I mean both categories there seems to be um, an evolution that happens a lot with um, their de- you know developing deeper interest in many of the same areas, having increased uh, kind of psychic awareness um, and interest in, you know, a lot of the same areas, religion and, and, uh, you know, physics or things. Uh, Some people become obsessed uh, with trying to build something. They're not sure exactly how or why, but it's like they got a download, you know, they, they want to create a free energy device or something or, 
or they end up being like the guy in Close Encounters, the third eye, you know, he's got that mashed potato and he's trying, <laughs> he says, this means something, you know, <laughs> and he's he's trying to build something. Just later we see it's the Devil's Tower there in, in, in Wyoming. He's supposed to go there because the aliens are fixing to make a big contact there with the government. <laughs> but, you know. Well, yeah, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite movies, by the way. Um, it, it just, you know, you you go through a whole um, a whole series of belief systems, and and you know, being fortunate enough to interview authors on all sorts of different topics, this is one that, of course, I I interview as many as I can find, and um, it it's it's fascinating how. People, their belief system. Um, you know, uh, are they are they aliens from another world, from another planet, from another dimension, or and and of late, um, there's been a lot of of uh, chatter, so to speak. That that um, that while yes, we've been visited, and 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 yes, we have downed crafts that we've reverse engineered, but that that we've been developing, quote-unquote, spaceships since the 40s, as has Germany, as has Russia, as has Japan or China. And, and so that a lot of what you see in the night sky, when you think you're seeing a UFO, it is a UFO. It's just a matter of, is it made in Japan, China? Did we make it? Is it one of ours? Is it one of theirs? Is it, is it from an alien culture? And, you know, you, you, you sit back and you think, Okay, so so some one or thing has been visiting this planet for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But wouldn't you think that their mode of transportation would have changed in those thousands of years? Wouldn't you think that they were no longer needing to have the saucers to to fly around? Wouldn't you think they had a better way of transportation since since thousands of years ago? That's what they were traveling in. Wouldn't you think their models would have changed? They would have evolved over time, as as you know we have. Yeah, and some people. So, have, so I remember auto. Yeah, I remember back in the seventies an article by Otto Binder, uh, who was an author back then. He since passed away, but he wrote in Saga magazine an article about the airship wave. You know, of like eighteen ninety six, ninety seven, nineteen oh nine, nineteen ten. And how we didn't have anything of that development at that time, you know, uh, but that these things were flying over major cities and uh, getting a lot of press. And could it be that maybe sometimes um, he wondered if maybe they were showing us things that at that time, at that particular level of awareness, we could kind of comprehend and they could, you know, they knew that uh, we were going to see them, but they had a control maybe um, – Perhaps they wanted to control how it affected us and how we processed that information. And so it goes through different stages. You know, for a long time, these experiences were seen in a spiritual, religious frame of reference. Uh, uh-huh. And then it evolved more into, because we're a, um, a technological culture now in recent centuries, and so we began to perceive it more in terms of some sort of craft, either uh, foreign government, uh or it's a uh, extraterrestrial, or now interdimensional. And uh, uh-huh. you know, during World War II, we had the full fighters there, these little spheres that would appear around bombers and uh-huh. such. And and uh, 
we, you know, the they thought on the enemy side it was our secret weapon, and we thought it was theirs. And then after the war was over, we discovered well, nobody knows anything about what they were, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and when I was talking with a yeah, guy that's... in Puerto Rico, he uh, he was talking about uh, some of the areas like the rainforest down there, very concentrated activity in recent years, and there are stories going back to the 1930s, and then there's uh, some of the Indians that lived there, uh, past centuries, that talked about the gods and things that happened to them in those same areas. So he he wonders if, you know, again, like, like we are talking, uh, if this is just an ongoing thing, you know, that went through different frames of reference. And, and I kind of question as to whether we're clearly seeing, you know, because we're so looking through such a technological lens and we find all these other bewildering paranormal elements, um, like I was just talking, I uh, did an interview with Kathy Martin, who is a, you know, a hypnotherapist, contact investigator, contact experiencer investigator for MUFON. And uh-huh. she, of course, uh, her, her aunt was Betty Hill, one of the most famous abductee experiences, her and Barney. And uh, uh-huh. she's, she was telling about a, uh, a gentleman uh, that she was investigating recently who had all these experiences and uh, at this location out in the American Southwest. And uh, one of them was, uh, was um, seeing these um, like prehistoric uh, creatures at which he saw with his, his mother as well. And it instantly reminded me like Skinwalker Ranch or an interview I had with, uh, Tom Dongo about out near Sedona, Arizona, the Bradshaw Ranch, where they've had all this anomalous stuff and seeing dinosaurs there. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see, with uh, this guy that um, was like uh, mammoth elephants on a savanna, is what uh, she said he saw with his mother, this this guy that she investigated. And, uh, you know, the Skinwalker Ranch, well, they've, they've got these skinwalker things or whatever they are and and uh um of course tom dongo talked a lot about the skinwalkers with us in the interview because it's that's out in his territory too um uh-huh. kind of like shamans who shapeshift or whatever um bizarre stuff um we you know where and he was telling about tom dongo was telling about uh on the bradshaw ranch that he was going to his car to reload his 35-millimeter camera, and Linda Bradshaw, who owned the Bradshaw Ranch, she was screaming at him. They weren't that far apart, maybe 45, 50 feet, and he never heard any of it, and he said he should have. You know, it was like they were isolated in a bubble. She was in her bubble. Uh-huh. He was in his, and, you know, she, he said this is the only time she ever got mad at me, and uh, <laughs> she, she uh she she finally got his attention, and she says, why didn't you answer me? And he said, I didn't hear anything. And then she described that she'd seen like these two long-necked, uh, he said they're like 20-foot-long-neck 20, 20 uh, creatures, dinosaurs. He said, what would that be? And I said, well, I remember from boyhood, that would be like a brontosaurus, you know, you know uh-huh. the, the friendly plant eaters. <laughs> and yes. uh, they were there, and then they disappeared. And there was some child and her mom i think another time that had seen something that was um a smaller dinosaur running through some brush that was had a tail to it definitely looked prehistoric 
And, you know, it's like, what is going on? (laughs) You know, I've often wondered if our perception is what our consciousness can deal with. Like 2,000 years ago, there were luminous beings that were, quote, unquote, angelic, and yet, you know, well, they, they perceived them as angelic. And and then, of course, um, Whitney Stryber with his little gray aliens, you know, after he planted that seed, everybody saw little grays all over the place. And I'm wondering if if our consciousness is giving us what we can deal with. And, you know, some, some people um, like... Um, Billy Meyer, he he perceives these Nordic-looking people, star people that he talks to, and has talked to for generations. Well, not generations, but decades after decade after decade. Um, and and then there are people that swear they've seen reptilians and they've seen ant people and they've seen all. So I'm wondering if it's if if it's your level of consciousness, what you are what you are able to accept and embrace and get whatever information is supposed to come to you through that experience so that so that you yeah, know I, um you know so 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 I might see a, a normal type person and you might see a luminous being and the person next to me isn't seeing anything cuz they can't cope with that and and that everybody has their own perception as to what a star person or an alien is and and that's that's what they are able to deal with, so that's what they see. Yeah, I remember a, a friend of mine reporting a case. Um, he was working on out in Arizona near an ancient site, and uh, ancient Native American site, and this crap landed, and these uh, beings got out. And he said, "What was interesting is is that um, everybody saw the beings a little differently. You know, they weren't all." Uh-huh the same beings, and yet they were standing right there in front of them and they all should have been seeing the same thing and uh and then we have cases um kind of like your college experience where we have people who are really excited or upset they're seeing what they think is a uh, perceive as a craft and yet there's people standing nearby who don't see a thing and uh, uh-huh. and and the well-known Swiss psychologist Carl Jung back in the 1950s he wrote a book one of his last books really that he wrote uh, on the UFO phenomenon because he had been quoted inaccurately making a statement you know uh, on UFOs for the press because you know there were people reporting radar sightings and the Washington DC sightings in 52 and there was a lot of excitement and so somebody in the the press asked him what he thought and uh the meaning of what he said was was actually distorted. Imagine that. So he decided he mm-hmm. was going to research it and, and write a book and give his own opinion. He he applied his his concept of archetypes of the collective unconscious, and but he was mystified as to how do these military pilots see craft and these things are picked up on radar. You know, instead of being like a visionary rumor, it seems to be more complex. And he had had an experience because he attended seances. Uh, at an early early age, um, and studied that experience and became aware of the, you know of, of psychic phenomena, which uh, 
which Sigmund Freud, who wanted to, you know, he was taught, he thought of himself as a father figure for young, for young, young, <laughs> and uh, wanted him to follow in his footsteps and accused him of, you know, pursuing the dark arts of the occult. Um, he, he was at a, a seance once and there was a medium there and there were four people who were seeing this globe of light hovering over the abdomen of the, the psychic medium. Except uh-huh. Young, who was standing there, he could see nothing. And these other people were clearly very annoyed and disturbed and confused as to why Young himself, you know, couldn't see what the four of them were seeing, you know. And yeah. he, he called it psychoid. He called it a psychoid experience. He knew of a few others. And he wondered if maybe that somehow gave us some clues to the nature of the reality of this phenomenon, although he couldn't quite... He couldn't quite put it together, but he just wondered, you know. And it's in his book, Flying Saucers: A Modern Myth of Seen in the Sky, uh, Seen in the Skies, which was written back and published back. Uh, I'm going to say about 1959, but you know, um, somewhere in that time period. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's you know, and so we have all these very unusual things to pursue, very challenging and perplexing phenomena like the psychoid factor, like the reflective factor, as Keel called it, or the Oz factor or effect, as uh, Jenny Randall's over in England called it. I mean, there's things that seem to be a little outside our reality, a little beyond, you know, um, why why doesn't this make more sense, you know? And you got all these belief systems to contend with. It's almost sometimes as an investigator and, and trying to communicate with someone who's got a particular belief system, I almost feel like a politician. I know if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to step in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's like, have you ever been in a crop circle? Uh, no, I've um, I've not been in a crop circle. I've been at you know at a lot of ancient sacred sites, but never have been in a. Well, wait a minute. I have been in one one here in Tennessee um, a few years back. I, I you know I don't know if it was man-made or whatever, but I don't know that that really matters. But uh, um, well, I think you know, I, I think it does matter because um, I I I was fortunate. I was in Virginia a long time ago, and there was a crop circle, and a bunch of us went to investigate it, and it was a very unusual experience because once you stepped into it. Um, uh, there there was a magnetic energy of some sort there um you know watches stopped um batteries died there was a feeling almost of um th- there there was a feeling of silence that was so profound it was unbelievable um i have ringing in my ears i've had ringing in my ears as long as i can remember i kind of like it um but the ringing in my ears stopped and it was it, it was a profound feeling of peace and quiet and solitude that came over every one of us and it was almost like you were alone in your own like you explained before a bubble and um you didn't want that to end it was it was and i have found the same feeling in some of the stone chambers that are all over the northeast here that I've been in. It's it's a, a feeling of 
uh, peace, of being protected, of, of being embraced by silence. Um, and those are the only times that I can ever remember not having the ringing in my ears, and I still haven't been able to explain it, but it is a phenomenon that has fascinated me for years now. Yeah, that is, um, and I've heard of things like that. And, and uh, actually, a few years ago, um, my wife and I were up in Portsmouth, Ohio, and um, at an ancient Native American site. It was, uh, it was a, we were part of a uh, a group from the Association for Research and Enlightenment, the Edgar Casey Edgar Casey Group, out of Virginia uh-huh. Beach, Virginia. And um, they were sponsoring it, and our uh, good friends, Dr. Greg and Laura Little, who are uh, very much into a lot of this, uh, investigating these ancient sites. Greg even has written an encyclopedia on uh, ancient uh, Indian mounds and earthworks. It's in its second edition, along with other books. He and his wife both have traveled extensively across the country documenting the existence of these sites. And anyway, we went there with a group of... uh, several dozen people and it's uh it's up on a hill the site that we were visiting that uh it was uh, what remained there was actually a lot that had since been destroyed but there did remain a large effigy u-shaped mound horseshoe type shaped mound a wall that was i'm going to say was like uh maybe 30 feet 40 feet wide and maybe about uh 45 50 feet back in this playground area and across the street to our left was um was a school that was sitting on top of one of the other u-shaped mounds originally had been two um and anyway we got permission from the mayor and his wife while we were there to actually do some drumming uh meditation work in this huge uh uh, earthwork, this uh, you know horseshoe-shaped earthwork, which the opening faced toward uh, the Ohio River, so toward the south. I'm going to say roughly the south, anyway. And uh, uh-huh. so we went in there and we were smudging. We had sage, and Joan and I were smudging the walls and the interior, getting ready for the group that was in the building nearby, where there was a Native American uh, artist who was showing a lot of his paintings and what they meant to him. And so we were getting ready for the people to come up and we were going to smudge them. And, but first we were going to smudge the area. And, uh, suddenly we realized, oops, you know, to do this properly, uh, we should have, and we should have known better to smudge ourselves before we went around smudging the the site, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so I said, okay, well, um, let's grab our foot-long feather we had and uh-huh. start smudging each other. The thing was, uh, it had been on the uh, this little blanket we had on the ground, and it wasn't there. So we looked around. We couldn't find it, so we decided we're just going to have to smudge by hand. And, uh, yeah. you know, we had the, the little smudge stick, and, and uh, we were using our hands. She smudged me. I smudged her. And then when we got got done, oh, it was back on the blanket. So um, I said, well, I'm going to 
I'm going to go ahead and uh, grab my tape recorder and record what just happened. And so I did. And, uh, well, there was uh, someone who was mowing the morning yard nearby. There was traffic. There was a helicopter that had been flying overhead. And on the recording, you can barely hear me, and I'm right there by the, you know, the, the recorder, and my wife's maybe two feet from me talking to me, but you can't hear what she's saying. You only hear me. It's, it's you know, but I wouldn't think so much about it except later on everybody gathers in there and forms a circle around us, and I do a talk, and everybody talks about how they can hardly hear me unless I'm looking right at them because it's like the, the sound is depressed. Uh, and yet people were having sensing like a vibration from the earth, uh, having like visions of like a, a ball of light or something. And, and two people uh, described having like past life memories as, as native Americans. And, uh-huh. um, and then, so then later on we go downtown to a restaurant about a mile away down at the bottom of the hill. And um, we're having lunch and the mayor's wife, who hadn't participated in this with us, is sitting about two and a half, three feet across the table. This is a long table, and she happens to sit directly across from my wife. And they get to talking. And um, I find out about a week later when I'm talking to the mayor's wife on the phone, and she says, you know, I really didn't know what happened, but says, as, as, as Joan was talking to me, all of a sudden, it was like everything got real quiet and I could hardly hear her, you know? And uh-huh. she thought, am I having a panic attack or what? This has never happened to me before. <laughs> is, is my hearing going? <laughs> and, and, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, the sound was depressed and, and they were talking. She was, they were talking about when they were young and went to church and she happened to tell a story about how there was a church that she had been to as a child that, that burned down. And uh, so anyway, um, as I'm talking to her on the phone, she says, and by the way, since then, uh, there was another church from my younger years that also just recently burned down since all that. And I found it interesting because that night after we'd done this, I was, um, I woke up in the night and I saw these like uh, blue flames and they were sort of like, in a ring, you know, like with uh, a stove that operates on gas. And I never have found uh-huh. out what caused the fire at the church, but I, I've kind of wondered, you know. Um, and uh, I even got up and, and went into the bathroom and because and, I had seen like this, uh, I think a shaman's face dressed up, you know, in ceremonial face mask. And I said, look, uh, I don't want any misunderstanding. What we're doing is just giving people a taste of, respectfully of what an authentic ceremonial event would consist of. We're not trying to take over anybody's job here. <laughs> you know, I was kind of getting yeah. a little worried, you know, but it was just kind of a series of odd things. And there was that silence, you know, um, that was a part of it. Um, it it's, and, it, you know, it, it to, me, in, to me, it was very comforting. Yeah. Um, I talked to, uh, well, I, I, I communicated a little with another woman who had been told about what happened to us, and she was Native American, and she used to uh, work at this site, you know, and was 
she had told me that what you guys experienced, other people have experienced there too. He says, she said, I assure you it's, and uh, everything's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But they had, people had seen balls of light uh, previously. Uh, We were told around this uh, big U-shaped mound and around that area, other people had had unusual paranormal experiences. Um, there had even been uh, some people who were ghost hunters who had visited the site, which uh, I understand they uh, they were kind of frightened away. Uh, <laughs> I don't think their approach was quite quite the right one for you know uh, an ancient Native American ceremonial site. But anyway, um, probably not. No. <laughs> well, you know, it, anyway. I think it's how you. I think it's how you interpret those things. You know, they could interpret them um, from their frame of reference, from what they do. Is that oh my God, it's haunted, and then other people, it, it's like this is the energy of the space, and we're we're welcoming the elders in, and you know, this is nothing to be frightened of. This is an honor. So, yeah, I would hope they had been frightened away. <laughs> they might have tried to exercise it and found that there are certain things you can't exercise. Yeah, and for us, the um, you know, we'd had, the, on this trip, we'd visited a number of sites, um, a number of people that had not just this site but other ones, uh, experiences where it seemed like Native American presence was there. Uh, I remember this one woman who was an ARE librarian pulled me aside to, uh, I think, one of the last sites that we had visited. It was over um, a weekend, and she said, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in case you don't, she says, when you do these ceremonies and you call them in, she says, they really do come. And she describes seeing these little dark figures uh, a little over five feet tall that kind of gathered around us while we were um, doing uh, a meditation with um, – a drum and uh, a rattling with rattles, I believe. And uh, we also had the pre-Columbian Peruvian whistling vessels too. And so there were some people that had some pretty, pretty amazing stories to, to share with us. And, uh, but, you know, you mentioned. You... No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say what you mentioned about the, you know, kind of like the silence and, and, you know, being like in, in a bubble that, that kind of reminded me of the, the Portsmouth episode there. You just you just mentioned something else that I wanted. Um, I, I you know, it's a field I've been playing with and investigating for decades, over half a century actually. And you hit on one thing that I've I've not run across: the Peruvian whistling vessels. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah. Um, they, um, I had heard of them before from this this lady up in Ohio that introduced me to the, uh, the medicine man who was also a contactee. But also, um, she had been kind of interested in. Them. She had lots of lots of in, you know interests in many things. It was always fun to talk with her. But it was a a Native American practitioner down in uh, Alabama uh, who's mentioned in Visitors from Hidden Realms, uh, Wanda Dove Tice who um, is part Cherokee, part Choctaw. And uh, she was at an event in Tennessee with a group that was uh, doing a 
meditation atop a flat-top Indian mound. We're not really sure where this was. It was back in 1987 during the Harmonic Convergence, as they called it, uh, based on Central American cosmology. And um, anyway, somebody had brought these Peruvian whistling vessels. They're pre-Columbian, or they're they're replicas of pre-Columbian effigy whistles, uh, the kind that I have and probably were used at this event were the two chamber ones, effigy, and they could they may have um, like uh, the figure of a person on the front. Uh, one has like the hands clasped in front of them, and their eyes looks like looks like they're praying or in meditation. Uh, uh, some have like a um, may have figures like a a bird or a fish which some people believe represents maybe the bird, the upper world, and the fish, maybe the the underworld. You know, the um, shamanic traditions worldwide often describe like a three-world concept, the upper world, uh, you know, angels, higher spirits, heaven, and the middle world where we are, which could also have other intrusions from, say, ghosts and spirits. And then the underworld, um, which... uh, could also have some sort of a underworld type spirits uh, and so anyway um, they were blowing these whistles and she was in a circle with a group on top of the mound having a meditation and she said that uh, she was seeing herself down at Machu Picchu in Peru and uh, it was like she herself in a past life was a star visitor and she, as well as others, had allowed their ego to get the best of them, and the ship was leaving without them. And she was being left behind and feeling very bad about that. And uh, she said that she saw herself in a robe and like a, uh, I think like a gold disc around her solar plexus, and she could feel this vibration around her solar plexus. And uh, and then she overheard some of the other people describing how they were having similar experiences and she thought wait a minute uh this is supposed to be my vision what's what why are they describing the same thing so that's why she got interested in the whistles and so i i invited a lady who uh benita Luz, who's also described in the book who was a psychotherapist and she spent over a year down in peru and uh she brought um she did a talk for us, and she brought a set of, of these whistles, which are replicas of these pre-Columbian uh, Peruvian whistles of the Chimu culture, the ones that she had. There were other ones, too, like the Vicus culture and, uh, and others. And originally, uh, I think this tradition with these whistles went back like 2,500 years. They've been able to trace it, and it wasn't originally actually from Peru. It kind of came down, uh, I think, from Colombia through Ecuador into Peru over the centuries. and um, But people have found the, the whistles to have, like, healing qualities, uh, generating visions sometimes, uh, people actually seeing, like, into the past. And uh-huh. I I took a set of seven whistles over to... Uh, to my friend Greg Little's home over in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, back about 2006. And he had a guest 
uh, well-known uh, author and historian uh, Andrew Collins, and um, yeah. we all went out on a pontoon, um, and it was toward the evening, and we had the whistles, and we started blowing them. And four of us, Greg Little, Andrew Collins, myself, and and uh, a gentleman named Jim, who was, a, uh, as I recall, is kind of a landscaping guy who lives in Memphis also, um, was um, we, we all had this visual thing of seeing like a spinning vortex. And what was interesting, I, I inquired as to well, which way was yours going, which way was yours, and all four of us started going in the same direction. And Andrew got excited, and he said, this is a like a shamanic tool that you could actually use. Uh, you need to get a group together and do this and um, see about going down the portal there, the vortex, and seeing where you go and then see which where you could, like I think he said, like spin off into some other direction and do uh, explorations into this altered state and see where, you, <laughs> where, uh-huh. it, where it takes you. Um, which uh, I really haven't found a group that I, you know, felt uh, could work with on that. But I, I, you know, I've given talks and demonstrations, some workshops on it, and it's interesting the experiences people have. Uh, some it's like an out-of-the-body experience. Um, one woman that I just did an interview with last night from the Nashville area, Kathy Brockway, she was one of... Um, two other people that I had blowing the whistles one time and uh, um, people were describing kind of like Mandela type images and you know with you know when when they were blowing the whistles and uh, they were kind of similar but what happened with her is and it kind of kind of made me feel like okay I got to be cautious with this thing with some people because she didn't, you know, after that, we all went around and talked with other people and just kind of relaxed. And she left about an hour later. And uh, as she described in the interview we did last night, which will should come out on our uh, website on, on the 1st of April, uh, along with other interviews, uh, she said that as she got close to her home, Everything started to shift around, you know, if the house would be one location, then it would move over to the left or suddenly to the right and other things, you know, um, it's like shifting around. And as she pulled into her driveway, she was like keeping her fingers crossed that she would hit the driveway instead of the lawn or something or the mailbox. (laughs) And she said she'd never had, she'd never had an experience like that. You know, it was, was, um, but what was interesting is, is, uh, we were at the home of Sandy Nichols in Thompson Station, who claims to be an alien experiencer, and he walked her to her car before she left. And he said um, on the other side of her vehicle before she left, there was a small gray being, um, and then it disappeared. Uh, but it's hard to tell if this is, you know, how this may connect exactly with her experience. Um, but anyway, um, it was curious. And then as we talked about, I said, you know, and then there was another experience that Sandy told me you had, which wasn't too long after that, where you come home uh, with groceries and the driveway was empty and you, you had plenty of room to swing your car door open and take your groceries in. 
And she was surprised when she got in with the groceries, and there was her husband at the top of the stairs. And she says, where's your car? And he says, it's out in the driveway. She put the groceries <laughs> down, went out, and there was his car. And she couldn't figure out, you know, because she'd just been there, and the car wasn't there. So shifting realities or alternate realities or what, you know? Lucky for sure. her, she didn't park on top of him, yeah. Um, when, <laughs> yeah. When you... When you were talking about drumming, were you utilizing a particular rhythm? Uh, generally, I would just kind of, uh, kind of a slow, maybe uh, slow beat, uh, maybe kind of like a heartbeat, and then you know, toward the conclusion of it, I would just kind of, you know, give it a few extra speeded up licks to kind of bring everybody back to you know, normal state of consciousness. Because the reason I asked is I had a, a shaman here that was teaching drumming. And mm-hmm. this was hand drumming, not 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 thumping, uh, not, not meaning to diminish thumping, just to differentiate between using your hands and using a, um, <clears throat> a thumper. Um, yeah. And she taught... She taught um, the paradiddle, are you familiar with that? Uh no. Um it if you if you were using your hands on it it would be left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right. And it's called the paradiddle. It it is a it's a fundamental drumming technique that drummers who are gonna be in rock bands and everything that learn but it's ancient, and what it does is, first of all, it balances the left and right hemispheres of the brain, and then it takes you further mm. if you're ready to go further. And um, yeah, it's I I I have found it, you know, as it was taught, you know, it was you can do this <clears throat> with your hands on your legs, you can do it on the tabletop, you can do it any number of places and ways, but it balances the left and right hemisphere, and then it calms you down. It eases tension. It, and the further you take it, the more relaxed you get. And, um, you know, if, if it, it, you weren't using hand drums, so it wouldn't have been something that you would have utilized. But um, it's been done in the, in the peace chamber at the top of Mount Washington, um, with with drummers that have gotten together and and at midnight they go out and they they use this paradiddle and and they raise the energy with it and oftentimes there are people who see things or feel things or experience things. Yeah. Just, yeah, we've got a couple of those I think it's the same thing what you're describing these big uh chambers that are I think underground where they people can go in and uh do chants uh, vocalizations yeah. and uh, drummings or whatever. Well, the, yeah, that the, sounds the like chamber, a neat experience. The, yeah, the chamber they go into is beneath ground, but it's 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 like <clears throat> the basement of a huge tower. So it so it absolutely uses it as though it's broadcasting, you know, to the hotel that's nearby and everything else. And and you don't have to even be in the chamber to feel it because it it just it emanates out from it profoundly, and um, mm-hmm. 
it's an amazing experience to and, and anybody can do it and and you know depending on you know if if it's quiet where you are and if you're just tapping on the table and you you shut your eyes it does take you somewhere and and where it takes you i guess depends on where you need to go inside of yourself but it but it is yeah. an amazing form of meditation just curious well, with, paradiddle is, well, with the yeah well with the whistles we um you know we would blow several of them together and uh-huh. it's some people believe it's kind of like a binaural beat like what uh, Robert Monroe of the Monroe Institute in Virginia had created years ago uh, for doing astral projection uh, for uh-huh. entering other states of consciousness and you know you got coming into one ear you got one frequency and then the other ear another and then a third one is created from the combination of those two or even just the the high frequency harmonic frequencies um could also do it. I know um, that uh the gentleman who first discovered the psychoacoustical qualities as he called them of these these whistles back in nineteen seventy two um, a gentleman over in pennsylvania he um he was just blowing the one whistle and suddenly he found himself um out of his body like he was traveling through space and he was a light being uh-huh. and and then he approached this dark cloud and he thought oh no I you know he just dreaded he knew that this wasn't good you know he didn't want to go into it but <laughs> he didn't know what to do but as soon as he hit this dark cloud it suddenly thrust him back into his body and he came to and he had sweat um, you know around his body uh, he you know and, and he had this vessel still in his hands in his lap and and this is what set set sent him on his quest uh and started this whole movement with the Peruvian whistles you know um he realized that uh this was some sort of ancient tool he never had been interested in any of this before uh his wife at the time was not too happy about this you know <laughs> this shift in his interest <laughs> he had well, bought this, this at, a, at an auction is this is this similar to to the solfeggio music that's out there that that is, um, it's a harmonic that that is at certain different hertzes depending on whether you're you're healing or whether you're going into intuition and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a very high frequency harmonic uh, sounds. Um, yeah. It may be up to two thousand or more hertz, and. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it, you know, it, there was even a guy that uh, this Don Wright, who was making them some years back out in Silver City, New, New Mexico, who's a psychotherapist. Uh, and uh, I got four whistles from him a few years back. And he was saying there was a medical doctor that wanted to get a set from him uh, for uh, helping, you know, people with certain conditions. So there's a, there's an interest, you know, in the healing qualities. There's an interest in the with many people, uh, how it affects consciousness. And uh, it's always really kind of kind of neat to take this and to a group who's never experienced it before, you know, and uh, see what uh, see what happens, you know. Uh, some people kind of get addicted oh, yeah. to it, you know. Hey, I want to do this again, you know, <laughs> because their first experience <laughs> was so profound. <laughs> and Jonathan well, Goldman, who is a well-known psycho, uh, sound therapist out in Colorado, 
Uh, he's written a number of books, and, and each year he does about a week-long uh, sound therapy class with, with people who want to sign up. And they spend about a week uh, there in Colorado at a certain place. I think it's a, a Buddhist colony. And uh, he gets them in there, and they, they do the different tones. They do you know chanting. They do uh, bells and whistles and so on. And he told me that they saved the Peruvian whistles for last because he said it is such a powerful instrument that sometimes people need a little advanced preparation to lead up to it. Whereas I have just been, bam! Here it is, people. <laughs> I didn't know any better, you know. I'm just, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but uh, that just kind of gives you an idea of uh, it's, you know, the, the power of this thing. And uh, yeah, I've got uh, a few few years ago. I, I maybe send you the link sometime. Uh, um, we and I remember one gentleman, Brett Oldham. Uh, he had a pretty profound experience, um, uh, and uh, I did a video of his description of it. <clears throat> and uh, you know, it's uh, interesting. The the it's like people sometimes enter um, another dimension. Uh, I remember one guy said that it was like he had gone to Machu. Well, he had gone somewhere down in Peru, and I think it was like Titicaca. I felt it was where he came up out of the water. And uh, and then he was down by the Nazca Plains, you know, the lines on the Nazca lines. They had the spider and the monkey and all those things. And he had a an explanation for that. He said that what he learned was in this vision that um, that uh, this guy described. His name is Tony Pratt. He lives up in Nashville. And he said that uh, in order to detect when they were teaching young people. Uh, to go out of their bodies, one way to find out if their their experience was authentic is to have them go up in the air and look down and, and describe these lines and see if they could accurately describe what was there. And so they would know from that, uh, because they knew what was there, but they wanted to see if the young trainee uh, you know, was either imagining what was there or he was actually successfully going out of his body. <laughs> And, you know, I don't know, but I just thought that was kind of cool, yeah. Well, you know, there's so much, there there is so much material and so much experiential um, material connected to um, the energies that that can be opened up in the human condition. And um, I, I, I describe it often as, you know, our spirit is riding in, this vehicle, and most people treat it like a Volkswagen, and then other people take the time to find out where all the bells and whistles are and have an amazing trip. <laughs> and and <laughs> I, I think that, that one of the things that the UFO experiences or, or otherworldly mm. experiences or near-death experiences teach us is that there is so much more and there is such a greater potential in the 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 vehicle in which our spirit is riding and and being able to be telekinetic being able to be telepathic being able to be clairsense and all the clairs um it it is something it is potential that is there for all of us if we have 
um, the desire and the courage to do the work to find it. Yeah, and, and you know, you go into your mind and, and uh, you meditate or you pray and you're sometimes you're going through a existential crisis and, and you're not sure if you're going to push the right buttons or not, you know. Uh, sometimes yeah. you just have to... Just had to venture forth with with the faith that hey you know um, I may have told you but back in '75 I was going through a kind of existential crisis myself I had you know accepted Christ and uh-huh. I thought hey this is great then I had people saying well have you been baptized in water if not yeah you know you may not be saved you know and I, I felt like I was doing all right. <laughs> And then someone told me, well, have you spoken in tongues? Have you been baptized in the spirit? Uh, what's that? Well, come to my little gathering. Uh, we're not mainstream. We're a little private, you know, and that kind of scared me. <laughs> I, had a yeah. little, uh, I, had a, I had a little bubble on my forehead at the time, um, you know, a little lump there, and, and uh, I just figured, you know, it, it's not anything serious. It eventually went away, but he was trying to tell me it was an evil spirit, started to pray for me and put his hand on my forehead. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I, I decided, you know, Hey, um, God creator, whatever I should call you, uh, you know, um, could you give me some kind of vision that'll help me understand this, what this, what this is and the spirit, what spirit is and some kind of insight where, you know, um, but I don't want it to be anything to scare me, you know, cause some of that stuff yeah. gets pretty. <laughs> so, two nights later, I'm crawling into bed, and bam! Suddenly, it's like I'm I'm on my feet again. Although in hindsight, I don't remember my feet actually touching the floor. Um, uh-huh. But you know, the light the light was off in my bedroom. It's like a long room. Um, I guess maybe 20 feet long from where my bed was over to the the door that led out of the hallway, the hall, hallway light was on. My father was in the bathroom making his last-minute pit stop, you know. So this didn't last long. And um, I'm going toward the door, and suddenly I'm about halfway across the room, and I stop. But my it, my focus the entire time is on that doorway. And it occurs to me that someone is standing behind me, and they're they're just keeping me where I'm at. Now, normal state of consciousness, I would question, I might be rather disturbed that someone was behind me holding me back, even though I didn't remember feeling a hand on the shoulder or anything like that. No, no feeling, just, and no fear, absolutely no fear. This is just like, this is like watching a fly walk across the wall there, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and then, and then all of a sudden there's all these tiny little pulsating, clear, white, beautiful, like balls of light swarming around. And it seemed like they come like down from the ceiling and going down toward the floor, and they seemed to be coming together to the, on the floor, near the floor, um, on the right side of the door, and taking the form of like a four-legged animal. But before it completed, all of a sudden, I was back in my bed, laying on my laying on the bed, looking up at the ceiling, which is kind of odd because whenever I go to bed, I I go down, I lay on lay on my stomach or on my side. And here I was just laying on my back looking at the ceiling. So that was the experience. But as I thought about it over and over, um, I thought, well, 
it showed that there was a, like an intelligence. It could exist in many forms, but it could also come together. It was part of nature. It was part of nature and us in the highest. It was like it was light. It was energy, but it had it had purpose, like intelligent design, I guess you could say. And so I felt uh-huh. it was the answer, and I also felt it was connected with, you know, my need for an answer and a need for it not to scare me. So I felt like I was a part of this and we're all a part of this. And I felt like that was, that was my little answer, you know? <laughs> well, that's, was a great answer. Yeah. It didn't overwhelm you. It just let you know you were fine. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I did get baptized later in water, but I, you know, spirit, maybe that was, maybe that was the baptism of the spirit there, you know? <laughs> Um, well, but yeah, I, I, I would, yeah, I, I would say so. I'm, I'm ordained in a, in a spiritual uh, church, and 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 um, their form of baptism is not with water, but with flowers. And I think what whatever works for you is most appropriate. Um, I understand with with Judeo Christian belief systems that that you know water is the way to go. But um, no matter how it happens to you, if it's profound, it has the same effect that, that, you know, someone who has been dunked by John the Baptist is going to have, so long as, as there is that surrender internally to spirit and understanding that there is a greater force out there. Yeah, I can accept that. I like that. Yeah. That's my belief. That's my belief was, today. Yeah, and around that time in '75, there was you know I'd been traveling across the country a lot, interviewing people, and and I know when I come back, some of my uh, one of my Christian friends had uh, said you know well um, you know did this strengthen your Christian belief? Was it evil? And I said actually I met some really nice people, and some of them I felt was you know kind of on a elevated spiritual level, which I found out later that person had said something to my dad that indicated she was a little worried about me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh but uh, you know, it's um it's a journey for all of us and uh you know, um I I believe that a lot of these experiences are experiences are going through a spiritual journey, many of them that's it's in fact I'm you know, I've a number of people have said being an investigator of UFOs and these unexplained phenomena is kind of like being on a spiritual journey uh, in one's oh, life. Oh, yeah. I well, mean, I, I may not go to... Go ahead. No, that's... <laughs> no well, well, wisdom is is never a bad thing to gather. And, um, you know, if something can't withstand test and questions then it's not authentic in my in my opinion so that uh i'm sure that you have met people that that have been unbelievably spiritually oriented that you know to be spiritually oriented doesn't mean you have a white robe on and you go to the mountaintop It, it it means that that you know you're you're open to to learn and to grow Mhm. and um and, Go ahead. I think that uh I think that like um 
and this was covered in my book, Visitors, um, that, uh, you know, there was one story that I had read where after the Vietnam War, there were these Vietnamese who were relocated in the U.S. Uh, they were a group called, uh, well, it was spelled H-M-O-N-G, so Hyom or whatever, but that there were suddenly dozens of these young, healthy young men from this Vietnamese group who were dying in their sleep. Medical doctors, our medical doctors were mystified, didn't know how to treat this. And uh, so, you know, for a while, it was something that was going untreated and the deaths were still occurring. And these people, like 50, 60%, uh, had at least one what they call an old hag-type experience. They would find this, uh, and this occurs in other groups of people, they call it a hagging, this um, uh, this being would sit on their chest and kind of like be suffocating them. They'd wake up and this, per, you know, this being, uh, maybe this old hag as they call it, maybe an old woman would be sitting on their chest and they'd be suffocating. And the Vietnamese called it a dab to SOG, D-A-B and then T-S-O-G. And I, you know, forget my pronunciation, that's the spelling anyway. And and so this was going on with this group of people. And then they reconnected with some of their other people and some that had a, you know, shamanic practitioners among the group. And they reintroduced them to that, uh, that part of the culture and these unexplained sleeping deaths began to significantly decrease, whereas nothing else had been able to help them. Um, and so, you know, you, you kind of see this in, in other people, you know, that certain people of certain backgrounds um, embrace a certain tradition or reality, spiritual reality, archetypal reality, whatever you want to call it, and uh-huh. it becomes uh, not only a part of their beliefs, but it affects them at a deep psychic, physical, sometimes deeply psychological level. And, uh, you know, in other groups of, of other cultures, you've got all these traditions with shapeshifters and, and some of this elements of even like witchcraft and and if you don't follow the recipe for dealing with some of those things um you know disaster can strike you can protect yourself if you know what to do and then other people in that area who aren't of that background that tradition um a lot of times are said not to be affected if they see one of these apparitions but if you're one of the people of that particular group or tribe you know, it, it can affect you. And I just thought that was kind of interesting, you know, um, how a group consciousness type thing, uh, you know, is involved. And, and I know when we did a recent interview with Tom Dongo out in, you know, Sedona, Arizona, and, and all those experiences going on in the skinwalkers, he said that for a long time, this was just something among certain Native American, you know, groups out there that that were practicing this and only native americans were affected but then he said recently uh these uh events have started to occur 
outside of their areas out into, uh, you know, even down the street from where he lives in Cottonwood now, you know, and he said uh, he's had several, several sightings down there. He says, what's going on? You know, so um, it's like maybe sometimes as we become more aware of what's happening in other groups that maybe there's that bubble effect they're they're originally isolated, but then, you know, um, we become exposed to that that same energy field, and so we have to learn about well, it and it, how to maybe interact with isn't it. This, isn't this sort of like voodoo? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I well, mean, yeah, definitely. Of, yeah, voodoo, witchcraft, things that really you know, because some of the stuff is really quite. Uh, evil you know <laughs> some of it is not good um yeah. Yeah. they you know curses and things and someone hopes to gain power over someone else or something um but uh yeah and 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 just having the belief in i mean that's what faith healing is too you know you believe that this person has the power to heal you ergo you become healed your body replicates you know what you believe this person can do Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It is profound what our energetics can create if we have a belief in them. You know, I'm I'm not so sure about walking on water, though. I do do that. Um, it has to be frozen, but you know, I, I can <laughs> walk on water. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> how, how have you quite gotten yeah. to it? You know, the person who is the the practitioner has to have total faith and belief in what they're doing as well as the person that is being practiced upon. So, but there are uh, there 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 are healers all over the world that that people have such a belief in them that 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 there are there are spontaneous reversals of amazing conditions that that. The medical doctors have said, you know, you're toast, kid, and they come back healed. So um, it's amazing. Yeah, many of our experiences. No uh, oh, geez, you know, yeah. No explanation. <laughs> yeah, they've described, and a lot of your uh, people have had spiritual, psychic experiences. And I think the thing with the shamans, it's, it's you know, in psychic mediums, they're they're a variation of what the contact experiences are going through, and so I, I think it's a it's a study, and you know, as I said, the consciousness, the physics of all this, and uh, how it may be interrelated. You know, the uh, <clears throat> the um, in my my book, uh, <clears throat> Rosemary Allen Galley wrote a forward, and she felt that you know John Keel often looked at the experiences he investigated as being kind of wired differently. And uh, she she remarked that she felt that Keel himself was wired differently too, although he never said so, you know. And uh, it was interesting to me that in November 2018 that I was reading about these two medical doctors who had spoken at uh, Harvard Medical School about a study they were doing, and they were using MRIs to study the brains of um, of experiences who are seeing orbs and uh you know having like psychic conversations hit by beams of light and so they were <clears throat> studying their their brains with MRIs 
and I uh, just thought it was quite intriguing. I, I I wrote to one of them. He was a doctor, uh, Gary Nolan, who works out of Stanford, has a place called Nolan Lab, and he's working with Dr. Christopher Kit Green. And I didn't put all this together at first, but Kit Green was with the CIA Weird Desk back in uh, 19, um, 1972. And, uh, you know, he studied Uri Geller. You know, he was part of the kind of a watchdog over the program that was going at Stanford and I guess elsewhere too. Um, and I think that some of what happened, between, you know, that he witnessed with Uri Geller and was happening to all these other scientists got him really interested in, in – uh, these stories of people being hit by beams of light and other psychic interactions and, and, you know, orbs or UFOs or UAPs that we call them now. And uh, so he's still ongoing with this and, and having the help of uh, <clears throat> this Gary Nolan and they're doing MRIs and medical workups. And they believe that, uh, again, these people are just kind of wired differently and it makes them more somehow aware. And, and, and I've been thinking for decades, it'd be so fascinating if, you know, we have people who are experiencers and having these kind of uh, things that are happening. And uh, the brain is, is an area that's um, not really been probed sufficiently because MRIs are extremely expensive. But uh, uh, fortunately, his two gentlemen have worked together, and this Gary Nolan has a lab, and they've managed to, to do some studies with this, you know, and... Uh, um, use some, have access to some 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 equipment, and uh, so I just found that interesting. They're planning to do a, a a an article in a journal. Apparently, they have a little over a hundred experiences, and then they had uh, people who are not experiencers or said they weren't, and they could look at the differences in the brain. And there's a, a certain structure in the brain that seems to have more of a neuronal sized size to it than a non-experiencer and um, I've already been aware that like some people who enter altered states quite a bit uh, hypnotic suggestibility or, or like Albert um, Einstein or Edgar Casey reportedly had liar, larger uh, corpus callosums that unite the left and right brain hemisphere together and they say if you meditate a lot your uh, brain hemispheres begin to work together. You're not just so dominant in the uh, the left hemisphere. You actually develop a more of an exchange between the hemispheres, and this is what uh, both Edgar Casey and and uh, uh, Albert Einstein. A lot of people may not know it, but Albert Einstein used to kind of use visualization to to work out some of his uh, great ideas and theories, you know. And uh, so. Uh, I don't. They, I just kind of. Didn't somebody preserve his brain though in a jar or something? And they did find that. Uh, you know, you you use the medical term for it, but the creases were deeper in his brain than with most people. Yeah, yeah. I think it's in a in a museum over in Pennsylvania. I think they got slices of his brain. Um, something he agreed to, I guess, before he he passed away. I hope so. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I kind of wondered about yeah. like Nikola Tesla too. I mean, he he was he was having some incredible uh, 
mental skills that he utilized. Oh gosh, he yeah. could visualize and, and, something, you know, and, and yeah, then was, create it without putting it all on paper. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was also. Um, I don't know what the right word is, a unique, bizarre person. He had unusual proclivities as far as, um, I don't know, eating the same thing at the same time in the same place with the same setting and everything like that. And he, he befriended pigeons here and there. And yet, a brilliant, brilliant man. And I've yeah. always, yeah. I've always thought and believed that he was murdered, but, you know, no way to prove that now for sure. But but a lot of his notebooks are missing and that there's got to be a reason for it. And and they're now yes, using Tesla, they're using <laughs> Tesla energy in a lot of places that, that they've never used it before now. Yeah. And I understand that when he passed that uh, his apartment in, in New York City that the, uh, I believe it was the FBI came in and, uh, you know, gathered up all the his paperwork, notes and files that he had in his apartment, and uh, confiscated them. You know, and yeah, yeah. Actually, so they, they had rooms of... right down the hall from him. I, I think it would. It, it took a couple of days for his death to actually be reported, and by then he was cleaned out. So it's. Um, what an amazing man. I, I would have loved to have met him. He just, he was so unusual. But all he wanted to do was to help humanity and give him free energy and, and, and look at what, what we did to him. Yeah, they uh, there were people who had other, other plans in the works. <laughs> and uh, he, um, when he was young, he had these, series of uh, um, he was bedridden with like this illness that uh, involved these bright flashes of light and and I think that if in, in the right culture say Native American I think they would have probably said this is a gifted one we need to make him a shaman you know yeah. oh uh, yeah but, he, but you know it was not from that, that particular culture but he became a brilliant scientist instead and uh, it's too bad that uh, we, to the date, you know, we come to the school system and a lot of people say, you know, I went to school and all I heard was like Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, no one ever talked about Nikola Tesla, This, you know, and, and then they find out about him uh, all these years later, you know, uh, maybe on Ancient Aliens or something on TV and and they start reading up on <laughs> well, it. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, you know, he did, I mean, the Tesla energy is being used in a lot of... Um, new and different ways. Uh, it's free energy, mm-hmm. it's free fuel, it's it's uh and and here was a man who, you know, when when who was it Ford or somebody said to him, How do I charge for it? and he said, Oh you don't charge, it's free. That's that 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 absolutely sealed his doom. You know, and, and um it's it's too bad because, you know, we could be we we could all be experiencing a lot richer um, realities if the electricity was free and and we had that extra money that was kind of jingling in our pockets for sure. But uh, yeah, I know there's a lot of people trying to reconstruct uh, with what information they have some of his experiments and uh, 
somebody <clears throat> of course somebody has all that detailed information i guess somewhere but it's it's um not not out in the civilian realm um no. that information <laughs> is available <laughs> it you know it but, really uh, is a shame that that there have been so many inventions and so many um um people out there that were trying to give things away for free that have been shut down whether it was a cancer cure or um, my dad was in the FBI during World War II, and he saw a demonstration <clears throat> of a, a tablet. I don't know what it was, but um, they filled a car, brand-new car. They filled a car with a gas tank with water. They dropped this tablet in, and the car drove like, like no tomorrow with no emissions. Hmm. And it was something the government yeah. had bought. And although I would have thought they would have utilized it during wartime, but they did not. And, um, you know, he often talked about that. He said he, he wondered why that wasn't, so, well, obviously the reason why it wasn't brought out is that, you know, our major oil companies and coal companies and everything would have been out of business. But uh, he talked about that frequently, Um Later on in life, that that he often wondered what what the world would have become had that mm-hmm. been available, and and apparently it was readily available at the time. He he saw it um, was some place near Washington D.C. where he saw it demonstrated. He was one of the agents that was there, and of course well, he signed a paper well, that he'd never mm-hmm. talked about it. Oh me, well I just uh, uh, spoke a few weeks ago on the phone with a. Uh, and Ed Young, who said he retired from Stanford uh, some years back. In fact, he he worked there when um, you know Tog and and uh, Herrera and all of them were doing their remote viewing studies and so on. Uh, uh-huh. He said he worked in the poor man's lab because he didn't have CIA grants. But <laughs> uh, he said that he created a device. He created a device that um, could detect psychic energy. He even told how Harold Sherman visited him in his office one day. And um, anyway, he said that uh, he did about 2,000 experiments, and they wrote the, an article up about this for a prominent journal, scientific journal. And the editor turned around and said, uh, this just can't possibly be, so I'm not going to print it, and turned it down. And he, he said, well, you know, I've already done 2,000 experiments. He said, no, there's no way this thing could work. Uh, no, I'm not, we're not going to publish it. He wanted it published so that other scientists could either duplicate, replicate his his experiments, or, you know, someone prove him wrong. Expand upon him. Yeah. 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 Wow. But uh, that didn't happen. He, he learned at that point that uh, science is not uh, what it's supposed to be. He said that uh, some of these conspiracy stories you hear about uh, suppressing new discoveries, he said, I'm afraid it's true. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he said. Yeah, his dad had tried to tell him years ago that that was the case, and he said, "I didn't believe it, but I, I had to get two PhDs and apply myself to study." He said, "I thought if I could find this out, get it out there, you know, uh, the fruits of my hard labors, my work would be recognized, and you know, it would go public." And he said, "It didn't happen." <laughs> no, but happily, there are people like you that that you know are out there and whispering, you know, the facts out there and 
And that's what's so great about podcasts and things like that. You know, we can put out information out there for people to either believe or not. But what I love about being able to do shows like this is that you plant seeds. And in in, in 99% of the time, they take root and they grow. And, you know, better than standing on a platform in a university, um, these shows that, that are out there on the Internet and, and, you know, floating on the ether will be picked up for generations. And people will either laugh at us or grow from us, but at least we will have made a difference. Yeah, and, you know, I, I don't know what all the answers are, but I'm I'm – I'm just looking and I'm I'm like you, I'm interacting with different people and trying to look at the different facets, the different aspects. And, uh, you know, somewhere along the line, there may be a brilliant physicist come along and say, yeah, I, I heard, I heard Barbara DeLong and Brent Raines talking about it and that's it. I'm going <laughs> to, yeah, I'm going to pull it either that, that or tomorrow, either that or tomorrow there will be a knock on both of our doors and there'll be men in black. there wanting to take us away. <laughs> Well, but either way, maybe it's be... out there. <laughs> yes, it's out there. As long as it's not yeah. the guys with the straight jacket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, either men in black uh, or men in white. Either way, run like heck. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. I just, I just noticed the time, and and we are we are cranking down there. Um, Want to give out your your website and and where people can find your books and and can find you. Okay. Well, um, Brent Rains again. Uh, I edit Alternate Perceptions Online Magazine, which I started back in 1985 uh, as a print publication, but now it's online monthly, comes out the first of each month at apmagazine.info. Again, that's apmagazine.info. And we always have audio interviews, sometimes print interviews, but mostly audio. And we have book reviews and various columns and uh, features of articles that people submit to us Um, and um, covering a variety of things from UFOs, paranormal, cryptids, um, ancient history. We try to cover anything that's an alternate perception. So anyway, um, uh, my book, John A. Keel, The Man, The Myth, and The Ongoing Mysteries just came out back in July. It's available on on Amazon, and uh, we discussed tonight uh, my first book, 2004, Visitors from Hidden Realms, which was published uh, back, you know, by uh, Eagle Wing Publishing in, in Memphis, back in Memphis, Tennessee, back in uh, back in 2004. And then in uh, 2009, I had uh, uh, Tim Beckley published my book, uh, On the Edge of Reality, uh, which was uh-huh. a, a book pretty much of, of a lot of people from different fields. Uh, there was Native American. There was uh, various areas of science, uh, study of paranormal, the UFOs. Uh, a lot of people I had interviewed over the years, and we put it all in this this book. And uh, so that's that's it for right now. Until I maybe write another book. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you will. I, w- I want to thank you so much for for being here tonight and talking about all of this material. I'm sure that. There are people out there that will have questions, and so um, if they send them in, I will forward them on to you. And thank you so much again for, for being so generous with your time and your energy and your wisdom. 
Well, thank you, Barbara. I know you're you're applying your time and energy and wisdom, and and I always enjoy uh, talking with you and and Mark, and uh, and you know, it's always a lot of fun. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you again, and um, thank you everybody for listening and paying attention and sharing your time with us. We so greatly appreciate it. Good night now. <laughs>